you'd like to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And we'll be looking at James 1, verses 16 to 18, really narrowing in on verse 17 there. And James is right between Hebrews and 1 Peter. We're looking at the first chapter, James 1, 16 to 18. If you're a guest with us, welcome. We're so glad you're here. If you take a moment to fill out a Connect card, those Connect cards can be found in the, in the shelf of the pew in front of you there. Uh, and that's just a good way for us to know that you were here, know a little bit about you, know how we can get in contact with you and all so that we might get you connected with what God is doing here within the life of our church. And, and we'd be uh, also glad to pray for you this week. There's a little space for prayer requests in there. Please take a moment, fill it out, jot down a few prayer requests. We'd love to pray for you this week. And you can either turn that into me or put it in the wooden box there on the table in the back or give it to one of the other leaders you see up here. We'd, we'd love to get connected with you. Uh, well, here we are in March, living in Ohio. Um, it's March. This is a month, much the same as March every year. When we've seen sunny days, 70 degrees, we've also seen cold, freezing days where clouds fill the sky and snow falls, and sometimes we see days like this seemingly back-to-back, don't we? If, if you're from Ohio, of course, uh, if you've been around here for even a short amount of time, of course, you, you, you might well be used to it. You're probably, uh, you've probably heard the saying before that well, if you don't like the weather in Ohio, stick around because it'll change. That's right. It'll change. And it's undoubtedly true. The weather here seems to change with a great measure of frequency, doesn't it? Sometimes it's baffling to see the extreme changes in weather in even a short amount of time. However, the, the, the reality is that any place you go, this saying is actually true. I've, I've actually heard multiple people from other parts of the world, use that quote to describe the places they live as well. It's a fact that whether you live in St. Augustine, Florida, or off the coast of Sierra Leone, if you live in Chicago or China, it will change, can well describe the weather there. And in all actuality, if, if we were to isolate those last three words from that saying, it will change, it's safe to say that that could be said of almost anything and everything in this life. Everything in creation is mutable, changeable, transitory, uh, alterable. Everything in creation should have a little asterisk next to it that says, subject to change. It will change. Well describes the weather, of course, as seasons change, as we transition from winter to spring. Those three words might well describe the weather around here, but those three words might also well describe everything in our life, from our city to our families, from nations and governments to individuals and persons. I remember um, moving to Columbus in 2012 from Dayton, and then in the fall of 2015, moving back to Dayton. And I remember feeling like I barely recognized certain parts of this city in which I used to live just a few years earlier. I certainly feel that way about Columbus whenever I go back there now. It will change, describes every marriage, every family, Marriages change because the people in them change. I think it was Stanley Hauerwas that once said that marriage is this, this, uh, this 
process of learning to know and love the stranger that you sleep next to every night. And children, they grow and develop. If you're a parent, you've got to figure out how to parent differently as your kids get older and more complicated and go through different stages of development. You change. Your experiences, choices, the things you learn over time shape you and form you and fashion you continually. You're not the same person that you were 10 years ago or even 10 days ago or even 10 hours ago. I I change based on whether or not I've eaten or gotten enough sleep at night. It will change our three little words that could describe almost anything and everything in this life. Almost anything and everything. Not quite. This morning we're looking at this question of whether or not God changes. Does God change? Has God changed In the past, might he change in the future? Does God change? Can he change? And this question was put to those surveyed in that State of Theology report released by Ligonier and Lifeway Research late last year. Statement four makes this statement. It says, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. God learns and adapts or changes or alters depending on the differing circumstances he might See in the created order. And to the statement, those surveyed were to respond in agreement or disagreement. And among those claiming to be gospel Christians, 9% weren't sure, 5% somewhat agreed, and a whopping 43% strongly agreed, professing to strongly believe that God adapts, learns, alters, changes. And as with everything in this current series that we're in, we're ultimately interested in what God has to say about the matter. What does God have to say about his being, his essence, his knowledge, his will? What does God have to say about his being changeable or unchangeable, alterable or unalterable? And as we explore this, our aim is the same as it is every Sunday. We want to equip you to hold fast. We, we, we want the strong among us to be more deeply assured and, and heart-affected by what we already know and believe. We want the weak among us to be strengthened, the ignorant among us to be, un, uh, to be informed, and all so that we might all together be better equipped to delight in God, disciple one another, and declare what we believe to a lost and needy world. So with that in mind... We're going to look together at James 1, 16 to 18, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and with rejoicing to the word of our God, written by James, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, every good gift. And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Master God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you who are our rock and our redeemer, 
We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. This morning we're asking this question, does God change? And we've got three one-word sequential responses to that question that's going to kind of outline our consideration this morning. And, and here they are, no, really, and so, no, really, so. So to answer this question to begin with, the answer is no, God doesn't change. But then to consider whether or not our answer is correct, biblically, we're going to ask, really? And to close, we'll consider the relevance of this truth for our lives, asking so. To first, to, to consider the question, does God change, we must say no. Our text this morning is in the book of James. James is like a New Testament complement to the book of Proverbs. It's seeking to impart godly wisdom to hearers. Uh, the author of the book is, is James. James, uh, the brother of Jesus, he was a pastor in Jerusalem. And he's, he's writing here probably to a small group of churches a group of small churches scattered outside of Palestine there. And uh, we're, we're, they were likely facing much suffering and persecution. Uh, and you can see something of this in the first chapter of the book here, uh, in verses 2 to 12. Uh, James is addressing this issue of suffering and trials repeatedly, and he's trying to encourage his hearers by showing them that that suffering in the Christian life is designed by God for our good. It's used by Him to form us into people of wholeness and flourishing. And that's what we see there in verses 2 to 4. And then furthermore, he wants us here to understand that remaining steadfast through trials will lead to an eternal reward. We see that in verse 12. However, lest his audience get confused, in verses 13 to 15, James wants to make it clear here that the temptations we experience when in trials are not from God. But James' audience, perhaps, was of a mind to, to say that when trials came upon them, that God was, was sending them temptation to sin and compromise in the midst of these trials. But James, James writes that our temptations to sin, when in trials, are not actually from God. James says in verse 13 that God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Rather, he says in verse 14 that when tempted to sin, it's, it's actually a result of our own evil desires within us, not a result of God's will in our lives. And it's within that context that James, James then moves on to our passage this morning, verse 16. He doesn't want his audience to be deceived about the purity and perfection of God's goodness, right? God doesn't tempt people to sin, and he himself cannot be tempted because God is perfectly, immeasurably, uncompromisingly good. Verse 17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, which is to say that every, every benefit, every legitimate pleasure, every good delight that we enjoy both in creation and in redemption comes to us from the hand of God. They're all gifts from Him. God is the generous giver of all good things. And this is seen in the title that James refers to God with here. He calls God the Father of Lights. He calls God the Father of Lights because we see in places like Genesis 1 and Psalm 74 and Psalm 136 that, that God created the lights of the heavens. He created the sun, the moon, the stars, and these creations 
showcase something of the generosity and goodness of God to us. This past Wednesday at noon, uh, when, when a few of us went on the short prayer walk uh, through our neighborhood here for the month of prayer, when we got back, we spent a few moments just, just soaking up and enjoying and talking about how delightful the sun on our skin felt. You go outside on a beautiful spring break and on a beautiful spring day, and you enjoy the delight of the warmth of the sun on your skin. You can thank God for that. And you go outside at night and you look up, uh, amazed at the beauty and splendor of the stars scattered throughout the skies. You're seeing something and experiencing something of the goodness of God. And yet, how can we be certain that this good God who gives these good gifts will still be good tomorrow or the next day or the next day? Can we be sure of him? Of course, sure, he might not tempt us now, and perhaps he can't be tempted with evil himself now. Perhaps he gives good gifts to us now, just as he has in the past. But what if all that changes? What if he changes? Anticipating this question, James provides an answer in what he says next. He calls God the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Right? So in contrast with the sun, the moon, the stars, they seem to move. They vary in some respect. The moon waxes and wanes. It appears in different parts of the sky, different times of the night, and different seasons. The sun makes its daily marathon across the sky and casts its long shadows as dusk approaches. And then it disappears from sight altogether. The, star, the stars seemingly shift in the night sky depending on the time of year. But, but, but is, is all of this true of the Father of lights? James says no. In contrast with the created order, the Father of lights is fixed, firm, and faithful. The Father of lights is unchangeable. He is unalterable. The word that theologians have typically used to describe this is divine immutability. Immutability. God is immutable, right? So if something is mutable, it's subject to mutation, to changing, to being altered. But God is not. He is immutable, meaning He is unchangeable, unalterable, He is not subject to mutation in any respect. James says that there's no variation in him. He says that there's not even a shadow, not even a whiff or a hint of change in God. He is immutable in his being, in his knowledge, in his will, in his purposes, in his promises. God does not change. And we should say that this is not the only place that the Scriptures speak of this doctrine, right? God's immutability is clearly taught all over the Bible as well. Malachi 3.6, the Lord says to the prophet, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Here's the, Lord, the, the Lord is here speaking of his nature, his essence, his being, as being immutable. And all to, to give his people an assurance that he is going to be merciful to them, that he is merciful. Mercy is identical with his essence, and thus his mercy is unchanging because God is unchanging. And likewise, in Numbers 23, 19, there the Lord is showing us that his promises, his purposes, his will is all immutable. And this is all 
rooted in the immutability of his nature. He says there, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? The answer is no. God is immutable, and so his promises and will are also immutable. Hebrews 6.17, likewise, speaks of the unchangeable character of God's purpose as a way of, of showing us the certainty and surety of his salvation for us in Christ. He, he says in Hebrews 6.19 that because of the unchangeableness of God's purpose, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is immutable in his divine nature. And of course, all of this is embedded in the reality of who God is, which is clearly communicated in the name God gives his people to call him by in Exodus 3.14. There the Lord says of himself, I am who I am. He says, I am who I am. What's your name, God? I just am. Among so many other glorious realities communicated in those brief sacred, theologically pregnant words is the reality that God is an immeasurable ocean of unchangeable perfection. Because of scripture texts like these, Christians have long confessed the immutability of God together. New City Catechism questions we've been reading in our month of prayer booklets this past week speak to this very doctrine. Question number two asks, what is God? Answer, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable. And his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth, nothing happens except through him and by his will. This, of course, is not the only document produced by the church that speaks to this doctrine. One of my favorite documents from church history is the Second London Confession, Produced in the 1600s, one article in that confession says this. It says, the Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite and being in perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body parts or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty in every way, infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, holy, free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. You see, God is gloriously, superbly, resplendently, perfectly immutable. And part of the way that we, we, we talk about this as Christians is to say that God has no potentiality. Okay, God doesn't have potential, right? To say that someone has potential is, is normally something of a compliment. I remember my choir teacher in middle school, uh, I sang in the choir, and I mean, I, was, I had the voice of an angel, if I could say that. 
And uh, in middle school, I discovered this band called As I Lay Dying. And I knew that I wanted to do what they did. Uh, I wanted to scream my head off. And um, so I started screaming my head off in this band, in, in this metalcore band that I started with my friends. And I, I showed my choir teacher a recording of us, and she said, that's you? You're doing that? She said, you can't do that to your voice. You're going to ruin your potential. Maybe I, I did, maybe I didn't. I don't know. But you can't say something like that about God. God doesn't have potential. God is already perfect, and that's really the rub here. The unchangeableness, the immutability of God that we're considering this morning is essential as it pertains to God's perfection. You see, if, if, if God were to learn and to adapt to different circumstances, then that would mean one of two things. It would either mean that God is not perfect and must therefore change to become perfect, or it would mean that God is not perfect and, the, and thus would need to change in order to improve himself and become perfect. I'll say that again because it bears repeating. If God were to change, it would mean one of two things. It would either mean that God is not perfect and must change to become perfect, or it would mean that God is not perfect and thus would need to change in order to improve himself and become perfect. And both of those claims are utterly blasphemous, and both are, 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 are frankly extremely disturbing to us as those who rely upon and trust in and depend upon God. I want you to realize something. The unchangeableness of God is a necessary and indispensable truth if we're to have any comfort and certainty in this life. Friends, as we discussed in the beginning, everything around us, everything in the created order is seemingly uncertain and subject to change. It's all fleeting. It's all immutable. It's all, therefore, certainly unreliable, ultimately speaking. Even those things that, that, that you have come to count on, on a daily basis, are actually not worthy of your ultimate dependence because they can change. Your friends and your family, you may enjoy a deep and delighted relationship with them now, but anyone who has lived and been hurt by family or friends or, or who have lost family or friends knows that even friends and family can at some point change and change into something almost unrecognizable to you. And, 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 and no matter what, they all eventually die and leave you alone altogether anyway. Perhaps you have a delightful marriage. Praise God for that. But your marriage can change. Your spouse can die. The person you're married to can change sometimes for the worse. Perhaps you enjoy and love your children. Good. But remember, children can be rebellious and moody and unpredictable. They're mortal. Your job might seem dependable to you right now. But that can change on a dime. Your job is in all reality, ultimately speaking, undependable. Your financial future is ultimately unforeseeable. So here's something we need to remember, friends. When your loved ones change, when your marriage changes, your children, your job, when it all changes. I mean, think about this past week. Banks are collapsing. When governing authorities seem either careless or incompetent. When the entire world seems to be in flux, because it is. Here is good news. There is an unchangeable God whose will is unchangeable whose purposes are unchangeable, 
whose knowledge is unchangeable. There is an, an immutable God upon whom you can always depend on to be faithful and good and true, even when the entire world seems to give way around you, and that is a comfort. Herman Bovink summed it up well when he once wrote that the doctrine of God's immutability is of the highest significance for religion. That's for, for living a godly life and a, and a trusting life. He says the contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and finds this rest in God and Him alone, for only He is pure being and not becoming. Hence, in Scripture, God is often called the rock. Thank you, Herman, for that transition to my illustration about rocks. David, the, the, the great king of Israel, certainly found all of this to be true. He, he penned Psalm 18, which we read earlier, in the midst of a frightening and uncertain time in his life. In 1 Samuel 21 to 23, we find King Saul, he's filled with, with envious rage toward King David, so much so that he's planned to kill him. Saul has spies everywhere looking for David. He's tracking David down relentlessly. He's like an assassin on this mission to eliminate his target. And so David, being the, the target, he's on the run. He's literally fleeing for his life. And on several occasions, David hides himself in these caves. And in these caves, hiding in these impenetrable, seemingly unchangeable rock fortresses, David sees something of an analogy for the nature and character of his God. In Psalm 18, the, the, the psalm he writes during his flight from Saul, he, he pins these praises to the one true God. He says something so glorious, so profound. He says, the Lord is my rock. And this seems to be perhaps a, a favorite analogy for David calls God his rock in this psalm twice. He says the same twice in Psalm 62. He refers to the Lord as the rock in Psalm 19, which we just prayed before this sermon. He calls God his rock. Why this analogy? Why call God a rock? Well, think about rocks. And like other created things, a rock is seemingly constant, steady, firm, fixed, unchanging. I know a rock can actually change given enough time, but unlike other aspects of the created order, you can look at a rock, and you can look at it, and look at it, and look at it, and do so for a very long time, and you'll never see it change. And this is a comfort to David, because God is unchanging like a rock. Thus he says, I, I can hide in God as my fortress just like he did in those caves when the entire world around him seems to give way. When all seems so uncertain, so mutable, so changeable, so unsure, he finds comfort in the unchangeableness of his God. You see how this is a comfort to us? Does God change? No, and praise him for it. But then I know that some of you right now are wondering, you know, if this is all actually absolutely true. You're asking, really? Really? You may or may not know this, but historically the doctrine of God's immutability has been you know, something Christians have confessed 
and unity even across different traditions and, and among different nations and all of that. And, and, and that all began to change in the West, at least, within just the last couple of hundred years. A few Western Christian scholars within the last several years began to compromise on this doctrine of divine immutability. And <clears throat> subsequently, that compromise was then taught to a number of pastors and popular teachers who taught in churches and wrote books over the last couple of hundred years. And thus, this teaching made its way to people reading those books and listening to sermons in the pews, which is probably why you have now 43% of those professing to be gospel Christians denying the immutability of God. Now, there, there are several reasons that Christians have begun to challenge this doctrine of divine immutability, and that's, as with everything, I, I want to anticipate your, your questions and concerns that you might have here this morning uh, for the sake of time. I'm only going to address one, and it's a big one, probably the biggest one. Uh, it, it might also address maybe a number of other questions and challenges people have for this doctrine. Those are the reasons I chose this particular challenge. But just as a disclaimer, if you have questions about this doctrine uh, that we're not addressing in the sermon for the sake of time, I'll make myself available to you. I'd love to talk with you. I'll be in the back of the sanctuary after service. I'd, I'd love to talk with you. But, but the one challenge this doctrine uh, to this doctrine that I want to address this morning is this. Doesn't Scripture show God changing? Doesn't Scripture at times show God changing and adapting and learning? You're saying that God doesn't change, that His being doesn't change, His knowledge, will, purposes, promises don't change, and yet Genesis 6-6, for example, says that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. The Lord regretted and grieved. That sounds like a change is taking place in God and in his will, right? Not just there. We might look at Exodus 32, 14, which says that the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So the Lord there had relented. He said that he was going to send judgment upon the people of Israel for their idolatry and sin. But then Moses intercedes and therefore God relents from the disaster he said he would send. And that word relented there, it literally means to repent, to turn, to change, to change your mind. You see the same exact word being used in Jonah 3. There, Jonah had been sent to Nineveh to announce a coming judgment for the sins of, of Nineveh, but, but the people of Nineveh go on to repent of their sin, and so Jonah 3.10, God relents or repents, same word, of the disaster he said he would send upon them. 1 Samuel 15.11 is another place. And we mentioned King Saul earlier, he was the king in Israel before David, but he displeased God, and so 1 Samuel 15.10-11, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Like in Genesis 6 and Exodus 32 and Jonah 3, we see God here regretting, repenting, seemingly changing his mind and his will. So what gives with all this? How can we confess divine immutability. How can the scriptures teach divine immutability while also we see God here seeming to undergo change in some sort? How can James say that there's, there's no shadow of change, not even a hint or a whiff of change in God, when there seems to be hints of change in God in these passages? 
Friends, we're, we're going to do some heavy theological lifting right now, okay? Like some heavy theological, philosophical lifting. We're going to use bigger words than we normally do in our sermons here. I'm sorry. We're going to think through some complicated matters, probably more complicated than we typically think through in, in a, a normal Sunday sermon, but I want to do this because I think it'll help you read your Bibles well, and I think it'll help you grow in knowing God. So let's put on our thinking caps. I, I trust we can all handle this. Now, to answer this challenge, we, we must first consider the fact that God is incomprehensible to us, all right? God is incomprehensible. In other words, as limited, finite, and also fallen human creatures, we are actually unable to grasp and comprehend the infinite and eternal and glorious nature of God. The infinite one cannot be grasped by finite people like us, right? We can't fit the great God inside our teeny little heads. It's impossible. Now, Psalm 145.3 tells us that his greatness is unsearchable. You can't find it. Right? Romans 11, 33 to 34 speaks of, uh, uh, in doxology, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? You see, friends, the glory and wisdom and knowledge of God is beyond our ability to comprehend and grasp. His, his glorious nature is infinitely beyond us. We can't know God fully. I remember being rocked by this uh, when I read A.W. Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy, when I was just a new Christian. I remember him, he was writing about God's incomprehensibility and infinitude in that book, and I remember just salivating over it. It was so glorious. And in it, he says, hey, whenever we state things that are true about God and thereby claim to have knowledge of him, it's like filling up a, a teeny little cup of ocean water and saying that you have the ocean, right? It's true in one sense, and yet entirely untrue in another sense. Because the ocean is so vast and glorious and incomprehensible, God is incomprehensible to us. He's infinite. His greatness is unsearchable for all of eternity. We as the people of God will continue to discover the glories and perfections of God like an infinite and eternal onion. We're going to be peeling back layer after layer of the glories and perfection of who God is, and we will still never fully know him. However, while God can't be fully known, he does delight in being truly known. While we cannot know God fully, we can know him truly, and that's why he gives us the Bible, right? The Bible, while, while never giving us full, exhaustive knowledge of God, because that'd be impossible, it does give us a true knowledge of God. It is God revealing himself to us in our language, so to speak, right? So if God used his language, if we could speak about such a thing, if God used his language to reveal himself to us, we wouldn't ever be able to understand, but in his kindness and his grace and his condescension to us, he gives us this infallible revelation of himself to us in our language. However, it's like, it's like trying to communicate rocket science to a toddler, right? Or, or to use another analogy, John Calvin, he said that scripture is like God speaking baby talk to us, right? So when you talk to a baby, you 
You simplify your language. You use single-syllable words. You speak with a kind of funny voice and all in order to, to condescend and get on the level of that child. Well, that's what the Bible is for God's people. It's God speaking baby talk to us so that while we'll never know him fully, we can know him truly through it. Now, with that, we need to understand that there are three different kinds of ways that language might be used to describe God. Then there, there are three different ways that the Bible might use language to describe and reveal God to us. Language might be univocal, equivocal, or analogical, right? So the first is, is univocal language. Univocal language describes something as being the same. So if we were to say that King Solomon was wise... And then we said that God is wise. If we were using the word wise in a univocal sense, we would be saying that Solomon's wisdom and God's wisdom are the same. Of course, that can't be true because God's wisdom is unsearchable. He's incomprehensible and infinite as we just saw. Solomon was not. Then there's another way that we might use language, and that's language in an equivocal sense. Equivocal language is... Is language that doesn't have the same meaning. So if you think about like the word ball, a ball might be a spherical object that you shoot into a hoop or it might describe an event wherein people dance and eat and celebrate. The word ball in that sense is being used equivocally to describe two different things that are actually unrelated. And if we were to say that Solomon was wise and God is wise in an equivocal sense, we'd be saying that we're, we're talking about two very different things. They're not the same. And yet that can't be the way the Bible speaks about God either, or else we wouldn't be able to even have a true knowledge of God. But since God can't be fully known but desires to be known truly, here's a third category of language, and it's what Christian theologians from Thomas Aquinas to John Owen all have said that this kind of language is used in the Bible. It's the kind we use in in our theology to talk about God, and we call it analogical language. Analogical language is language which uses analogy, as you could guess. So in this sense, when we say that Solomon is wise and that God is wise, we don't mean the exact same thing. But there are similarities. We're trying to show that you can learn something of God's wisdom by looking at the wisdom of Solomon. Even while God's wisdom is infinitely greater and more vast and incomprehensible. The Bible uses analogical language to describe the glorious and incomprehensible God so that while we may never fully know him, We can know him truly. Now with that, you can see examples of the way the Bible uses analogy to speak about God all over the place. We talked about God as a rock earlier, right? That's not to be taken univocally. God is not a literal, immobile, rigid, unmoving object that just sits there without any life whatsoever, right? So you can't take it univocally. You can't take it literally. No, it's analogical. It's meant to show us something of God's immutability and unchangeableness, But it's not meant to say that God is rigid and immobile. And likewise, the Bible uses what we call anthropomorphisms all over the place to talk about God. That is, the Bible speaks about God in human ways and having human body parts. We saw this just a a few weeks ago at the beginning of this series. We see it in places like Genesis 6-8, talks about God's eyes. Exodus 15, 16, talking about God's arm. Or 1 Samuel 5, 11, talking about God's hand. Psalm 18, 8, talks about God's nostrils. Psalm 17, 8, talks about his wings. 
Right? Now, does God literally have an eye and ears and nostrils and arms and hands and wings? We know that he doesn't. John 4.24, God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. He's not a composite being. And yet, in God's gracious condescension to us, he reveals himself to us by way of analogy and through anthropomorphic language so that we might know, truly know something of his goodness and glory even while we'll never be able to fully know His goodness and glory. And likewise, just as the Bible sometimes uses non-literal anthropomorphic language to speak of God, it also sometimes uses non-literal anthropopathic language to speak about God. Anthrop meaning human, and path, pathos meaning emotion, anthropopathic. Just as anthropopathic, or just as anthropomorphic language might depict God as having human body parts, So anthropopathic language ascribes changeable human emotions to God, which we ought not read in an overly rigid and literal sense, even while it's still revealing something true to us about God. And that, I would argue, is what passages like Genesis 6-6, Exodus 32-14, Jonah 3-10, and 1 Samuel 15-11 are doing. And you might say, well, that's all well and good, G-Money, but... how do we know that that's biblical and that's what the biblical authors are doing in those places? Well, look in your Bibles at 1 Samuel 15. You can even open there. The, the verses will be on the screen, but, but you can turn there. And you'll, of course, see in verses 10 and 11 that Samuel ascribes this anthropopathic language of regret and repentance in, in God. But then if you continue reading, your eyes will eventually read, uh, reads verses 28 to 29, 1 Samuel 15, 28 to 29, which says this. These verses here are echoing Numbers 23, 19, which we read earlier. But here we read, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Okay, so Samuel just said that God had regret in 15.10. And here in 15.29, he's saying that God can't have regret. He's not a human being, so he won't or he can't have regret like a human being does. Got it. What's Samuel doing here? Right, did is he making, did he make a mistake and contradict himself within just a few short verses? I submit to you that that's not what happened. He's trying to show us that while God is present and at work in the created order, particularly here as it relates to Saul, but the, in, in, in the reality, in all things, while God is present and at work in the created order, while he's personally relating to us as his image bearers, it might sometimes look as if God is undergoing a change. Because, well, the the way he relates to his creation in some ways changes at times, right? That's undoubtedly true. We wouldn't have any hope of salvation in the gospel. We wouldn't have any hope of forgiveness and redemption in Christ if God wouldn't change the way that he related to us as human beings. And Samuel is showing something of that reality here. God can change the way he relates to his creatures. Yet in verse 29, he's clarifying toward the end of the chapter here for us that he, he doesn't want us to get it confused. Don't confuse a change in God's activity and work in relation to his creation as actually constituting a change within God himself. 
Here's how Francis Turretin puts it to try to explain this occurrence. He says, Repentance is attributed to God after the manner of men, but must be understood after the manner of God, not with respect to His counsel, but to the event, not in reference to His will, but to the thing willed, not to affection and internal grief, but to the effect in external work, because He does what a penitent man usually does, Right? A repentant person will inevitably change their course of action and work and choices in life. And here this same language is being ascribed to God because he's removing Saul from his throne even while he was the one who put Saul there in the first place. Right? There seems to be a, a, a change in course of action and yet Samuel wants us to see that while all of this is happening, even while this change is happening, there is no change taking place in the nature of God himself. That language here is being used analogically and anthropopathically as a way of God graciously condescending to us and speaking to us in baby talk. That while we might not know him fully, we can know something of him in his work truly. Therefore, does God change? No. Really? Yes, really. And lastly, that's, that's not the only question we want to ask this morning. We also want to ask the question, so? So what? Why does this matter for us and for our lives and for our comfort and for our assurance? Is this all just abstraction? I'd say, no matter what, it matters because it's who God is, and we should be gloriously interested and captivated by it because of who God is. But it also brings real change and rest to our hearts and lives. Two brief answers to that question. So, God, first, it matters because God is unchanging. That means that you can therefore trust in his unalterable goodness. God is unchanging, so you can trust in his unalterable goodness. You can count on God to be love, to be just, to be righteous, to be pure, to be holy, to be merciful, to be gracious, to be faithful, to be good. You can count on all of those divine perfections being found in God for all of eternity because God does not change. Stephen Charnock rightfully said that immutability is a glory belonging to all the attributes of God, a thread that runs through the whole web. It is the enamel of all the rest of the divine perfections, right? In this sense, enamel is this like coating that one might put over uh, pottery or tile or something as a way of, of giving it a durable and protective layer that keeps what's underneath from decaying or deteriorating. Well, God's immutability is like the enamel of all the divine perfections that we love and delight in in our God. Perhaps you can see here that that's exactly what James is trying to get across to us. He says there's no variation or shadow due to change in God. Particularly, he's relating this to the goodness and generosity of God to us as his people. He's saying when, when, when all around us is giving way, when all around us seems so uncertain, so fluid, so in flux, we can rest assured of this. We have a good and gracious Father who is all that He is for us in Christ. And who He is is good and faithful and generous. 
So even while the world frets and panics this week about banks and wars and rumors of wars and all the rest of it, we, we can joyfully sing and confess together, great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there's no shadow of turning with thee, thou changest not thy perfections, thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever will be. We can say and believe and confess together that every good gift and every perfect gift is given and will be given by the Father of light who is perfectly, immeasurably, uncompromisingly good and whose goodness will never change. And what a comfort that is. You can trust in Him, friends. He is dependable and durable and perfectly unchanging. And next, since God is unchanging, we can also rest in his indestructible salvation. God is unchanging. So you can rest in his indestructible salvation. In verse 18, James goes as far to to give an example of God's immutable goodness and generosity. He says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. In other words, by God's own generosity and goodness, he has given us the new birth. That's one of those good and perfect gifts that James was just talking about. And that's what brought us forth means. It means to give birth to, to beget. And God has given us this new birth through the the good news of the gospel having been communicated and preached into our ears. And he says, those of us who have been born again through our hearing of that gospel, he says, we're, we are the first fruits of what God intends to do with the entirety of the creation. There is a great and cosmic renewal. There is a cosmic new birth coming to God's creation. And we who are born again believers are the first fruits of that great harvest which is yet to come. And that, all by God's own immutably gracious and generous will. You see how James is showing us something of the, of the connection between God's unalterable goodness and our indestructible salvation. And this is not the only place that, that shows this connection in the Bible. In fact, many of the texts of the Bible speaks about God's immutability, directly connects that doctrine to our salvation. Remember Malachi 3.6. It's because of God's unchangeableness that that his people are not consumed. God has been and is and will be merciful to his people precisely because he doesn't change. You can count on his mercy. Hebrews 6, 17 and 19. It's because of God's unchangeableness that we can be sure of his salvation. Or another place that we didn't look at earlier, Psalm 102, verses 25 to 28. Scribing praise to God, it says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And in connection with this glorious truth, the psalmist closes with saying this. He says, The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Do you see the inextricable connection between God's immutability and the absolute indestructible security of you as his people? If you belong to God, you are safe and secure in him. 
What he has begun in you, he will bring to completion. You are safe and secure with your God. Now to be clear, God's immutability is only good news for us if we've repented and trusted in Christ. Friends, if you're here this morning and you've not repented or trusted in Christ, you have no reason to think that God's immutability is good news or that God is immutably for you. In fact, because of God's goodness and perfection, because of His holiness and justice, being unchangeable, if you're not reconciled to Him through Christ, His immutability actually means your eternal condemnation and judgment. And yet, here's the good news. While He is unchangeable, He has made a way for our relationship with Him to change. Because the unchangeable Son of God Himself assumed a human nature. And in a way that didn't change his divine nature, but in a way that added to his person a human nature, and as a man, he lived the life that we should have lived, representing us. And he died the death that we deserve to die in our place. And he rose again three days later to launch the first fruits of his new creation, which will eventually invade the entirety of the cosmos. But before then, he's giving us time. Time to repent and place our faith in Him. And all who do repent and trust in Him for salvation will have their relationship with the immutable God changed so that He would become immutably for them in all of His goodness and mercy and kindness. And this is the good news for all of us in Christ here this morning. Christian, because your Savior is immutable, your salvation is immutable. Because your Redeemer is unchangeable, your redemption is unchangeable. Because your God is unalterable, you are unalterably His. You are secure beyond your wildest imagination. Because the God who is unchangeable is unchangeably for you in Christ. Therefore, rest in His indestructible salvation. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the table, seal this word upon our hearts. May you remind us that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, that Christ will come again, and that because we belong to you in him, we are secure. Comfort us with this reality, even while the whole world gives ways and in flux and fluid and and everything is changing around us. Assure us of this unchanging fact that you are unchanging. Therefore, we are unchangeably yours in Christ. Pray in Jesus' name.